0: Welcome to Farm. I'm your host, John Bazar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of OncoPharm, the Bill Gadd College of Pharmacy. Yes, I've uh, been promoted from associate professor to professor. Uh, applause. Thank you. Um, I mention this only because when, uh, you know, for the four or five of you listening who are oncology pharmacists working for colleges of pharmacy and academia, when you go up for promotion... Typically, your department chair or uh, review committee asks for names of external people that you don't really know who can review your promotion dossier. But they need to be at the level uh, higher than you. And um, since professor is the top of the, uh, you know, from assistant to associate to professor, give them my name. Uh, given my name, happy to review those dossiers for those of you going up to associate or to professor. Uh, that's really the only reason I mention that and, you know, for the applause. Uh, today, uh, it's the 1st of July, right? That's why That's why I can mention the professor thing. 1st of July, we're talking about kind of a bread and butter topic uh, because there's a really nice review article out in Lancet Oncology, actually published online a few months ago, but in print this week. About evidence-based approaches for the management of side effects of adjuvant endocrine therapy in patients with breast cancer by uh, Franzoi or Franzoui uh, and colleagues, um, uh, writing from Italy, it looks like. Uh, you know, you know, your tamoxifen, your your aromatase inhibitors, your your hormonal treatment. Uh, these have to be the most prevalent anti-neoplastic agents. Uh, taken on a daily basis, prescribed on a daily basis, dispensed on a daily basis. They're very prevalent out there. And, and um, it's kind of a bread and butter topic, I think, to talk about. And uh, this is a really nice review. I'll link to it um, in the show notes. Uh, and there's actually a wonderful kind of color wheel uh, that – It's pretty easy to take in to see where the quality of evidence is. Essentially, um, uh, it's pretty color-coded, pretty easy to look at. Basically, the darker the color for uh, a drug or um, uh, a treatment approach, uh, the more evidence there is for that treatment approach, for whatever the the side effect is of hormonal treatment. This focus is going to be mostly on pharmacologic treatment. Of these side effects, as opposed to, to non-pharmacologic, just because I'm a pharmacist and that's what's more interesting. Um, but if you're interested in, you know, the data behind martial arts or yoga for treating fatigue uh, caused by, um, you know, tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors, I would refer you to the article. And there's a very uh, extensive appendix as well. You can find online great literature review here, uh, especially if you work a lot uh, with breast cancer patients. So. Um, and the reason that this toxicity management is really important, these drugs are really effective for breast cancer, but they're not—they're um, not all that easily tolerated. <laughs> when you when you consider a, a regimen like ChOP, how many people don't finish six cycles of ChOP or are ChOP? Most of them do. How many people finish five years of hormonal treatment for breast cancer? Probably a lot. A lot do not. Uh, the article estimates anywhere from 31 to 73 percent don't complete five years of hormonal treatment that seems about that's a wide range but that seems about right that uh, a lot of folks don't if, if I just think back to the last week the last month in clinic uh, you know see a lot of breast cancer patients the number who did not complete five years of treatment it's it's easily um, one in four don't complete five years just anecdotally and the evidence backs suggests it's it's probably higher than that um, so the the first side effect I'll talk about is hot flashes which is the really the most obvious you would think of for, for any drugs that are anti-hormonal uh, for breast cancer. So the best evidence lies with uh, SSRIs and SNRIs. Um, venlafaxine has the, the most data, uh, as described by the authors, uh, with doses ranging from 37.5 to 150 milligrams uh, in dose. Higher doses, more effective, but also uh, more side effects from venlafaxine. Uh, lots of other drugs have been studied, including escitalopram. I mentioned those two first because uh, they're, they're mild, uh, or not inhibitors of 2D6, which could interact with taboxifen, and you have moderate 2D6 inhibitors like duloxetine and sertraline, and then a potent 2D6 inhibitor, uh, paroxetine. Now, something I learned from reading this, there are some other options beyond these that actually have some placebo controlled evidence, though not as high quality uh, as with venlafaxine, and that's gabapentin, pregabalin, clonidine, and low doses of oxybutin, and even 2.5 milligrams of oxybutynid uh, had some benefit compared to placebo. So it's a pretty common thing, and I always tell students if they're doing uh, my clinic-based rotation, um, you know, even these patients who come in and it's a three-year follow-up on tamoxifen or an ask them about, you know, if they have hot flashes, if they have these side effects. This is how you, uh, as a student or a trainee, how you learn um, what these side effects uh, are and how they affect patients' lives. The next one to talk about are the musculoskeletal symptoms, arthralgias, myalgias. typically more severe with aromatase inhibitors than with tamoxifen, while hot flashes tend to be a little bit more prevalent with tamoxifen than aromatase inhibitors. But these two are the most prevalent and the most common reasons to stop uh, taking hormonal treatment, uh, arthralgias, myalgias, especially for AIs. So uh, we have the ATOL study. Uh, and there's some data with switching from anastrazole to letrozole. Now, this is switching um, within class, but also uh, very similar drugs. They're both non-steroidal aromatase inhibitors. And 72% after switching from anastrazole to letrozole were able to still take letrozole for six months. Um, but of those, 74% still had musculoskeletal symptoms. Uh, there was another study that looked at a switch from XMS stain, which is steroidal, to letrozole, non-steroidal or vice versa. And there was less functional status uh, worsening or impairment in the next three months than in the time before that. So it looks like if you want to switch AI, it makes the most sense if you're switching AI for the purposes of improving tolerability, uh, due to musculoskeletal symptoms, arthritis going from an asphalt or a to XMS stain makes more sense than, than interchanging between, uh, the non-steroidal AI class. Although I've seen both. There's also data for duloxetine helping decrease the joint pain, and that is placebo-controlled data. Uh, now, duloxetine, we also know, helps with hot flashes. can also help with depression, and, and we know from kind of the pain literature that people with depression uh, tend to experience pain uh, more than people uh, who don't have depression. So there may be a, a, a two birds with one stone or three birds with one stone with, with duloxetine here for the arthralgias and the myalgias. Uh, the next, the next one to talk about, and there, there are really, um, you know, four or five here uh, that they mention here, uh, is sexual dysfunction, and this is one that is not commonly talked about. You don't see this a whole lot, really, in drug monographs or in teaching slides, but but pretty, but very prevalent, uh, and this can include vaginal dryness, uh, dyspareunia, which is uh, pain during sexual intercourse, decreased libido as well. And the most evidence actually is for uh, vaginal uh, hormones. So intravaginal um, estrogen tablets, uh, intravaginal uh, creams, uh, intravaginal testosterone as well. Uh, The authors do say that uh, it's generally preferred to use vaginal lubricants, which don't have highest quality of data as the vaginal hormones. And that has to do with, you know, these vaginal hormones, whether it's estrogen does get absorbed, or testosterone, that also gets, there is some systemic absorption, and even testosterone, if you're not on an AI, uh, is going to be converted to estradiol, and we do see in these studies increased levels uh, of estradiol in these things. Now, whether that's clinically relevant or clinically deleterious, we don't know. The authors uh, state, uh, quote, no formal evidence of an increased risk of breast cancer has been found, but I don't think any study was powered to look here for this space, at least the literature I reviewed, to look to see if there's an increased risk in breast cancer in a meaningful and and well-powered way. Uh, so the general recommendations are vaginal lubricants, very safe, things like the KY, KY Jelly as a brand name, uh, safe, easy to use, would be helpful for vaginal dryness, not so much for for decreased libido, uh, whereas uh, maybe the intravaginal and intratestosterone uh, treatments might have some some benefit for libido. But that's a risk-benefit scenario. There there has to be some increased risk of breast cancer. Uh, So you have to weigh the risk of that with the benefit so the biggest risk might be in someone who's premenopausal taking um luprilide for ovarian suppression plus aromatase inhibitor where you know any amount of estrogen is going to decrease uh the effectiveness of that in, in premenopausal folks um, and then who's going to benefit the most from this would be would be women who the vaginal dryness uh dyspareunia is imp- it's significantly impairing the quality of life and relationship with with their partner um so I certainly know some oncologists who would never uh, prescribe vaginal hormones uh, for, for those concerns of, of increasing the breast cancer risk potentially, um, but certainly worth a discussion and not something that we should just gloss over with patients because that's an important part of people's, people's lives. Uh, the next one is fatigue. Not a lot of good drugs for fatigue. Uh, you know, ginseng has some, some very low quality evidence. The best evidence is for exercise and cognitive behavioral therapy. And, um, you know, there's a reason I exercise in the morning and not after work. It's because after work I'm tired and I don't want to do things. So if you're fatigued from your anti-cancer treatment, convincing people to, to exercise is maybe a bit of a tough sell but there, we do have good data both for aerobic exercise, like walking, and, and uh, uh, strength training or resistance training, uh, also helping uh, improve fatigue. And I also mentioned weight gain uh, as a side effect, which which I don't think of as a side effect of hormonal treatment. They, of course, we know that adipose tissue uh, is a source of estrogen production, and and so losing weight in, in, in women who are obese taking uh, with hormone positive. Breast cancer is something that we should do, and you know, it's the same sort of um, strategies you would use for anybody uh, with weight gain, specific to breast cancer, being exercise uh, and and counseling and cognitive behavioral therapy about uh, what are your maybe triggers to overeat and just increased education about food uh, and calorie density in certain types of foods. Okay. So fairly straightforward topic, but a lot of good evidence and a lot of good um, work has been done in this space. It's a really nice review article uh, that I encourage you to check out. It'll be linked in the show notes. I'll tweet this out as well. I'll be on vacation for the next week. There will be a pod next week uh, of some kind uh, that will drop. And uh, uh, then uh, I guess the second full week of July, we'll wrap up. uh, What's been new? I'm sure the FDA will We'll pump out a whole bunch of indications the first week of July or something like that to catch up on. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at PharmDietnib, and you follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.